Let's open the Word of God to John 15. Let me read to you the first eight verses. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. Amen and amen. amen. Let's leave John 15 for a moment, look at the verses that we've already covered this morning, and see how they relate to this chapter. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1 and quickly look at those words again. The point is, Jesus said, if you'll abide in me, I'm the vine. If you'll abide in me, you can do anything. If you don't abide in me, you can't do anything. Because there's power in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The point is, there's power, there's strength in Jesus Christ. We have already read, and I return you to Colossians 1 to look at the verses again, that in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, they were to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. They were to walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. They were to be fruitful in every good work. They were to increase the knowledge of God. These things Paul prayed for these saints, that they would be strengthened, in verse 11, with all might. There is the power that is in Christ, prayed for by Paul for this church, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. Come back a few pages to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 tells us that Paul was praying again for a different church. And he prayed for them in verse 16 that he would grant you, that is God the Father, according to the riches of his grace, glory, the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. There is again strength and might and power by the Spirit of God in the inner man, Paul praying for another one of his churches. If Paul prayed for his churches, he certainly would have the prayer for our church, and so we have the epistle evidence that we ought to be praying for these things and doing them. If we come on down further, it says in verse 20, Now unto him that is able, that's power. When you're able to do something, that's the ability to do work. It's power to do work. And now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, yes. there's power through Jesus Christ. As long as you're walking with Jesus Christ, there is power to do everything that the Bible expects you to do, to be a great man or a great woman or a great child in this church, in this world. Much could be said about every one of these passages. I just want you to see the power that worketh in us. 
If you leave the vine, you lose the power. If you reattach to the vine by going back into him practically by repentance like Asaph did, you renew the power. It's what John 15 is about. I fear that you, get, you think there's something mysterious in John 15 because he brings in a grapevine. There's nothing mysterious. It's the ABCs of religion. Look at Romans chapter 15 about power. A verse I've used a hundred times or so in the last ten years. Romans 15, 13. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. That's a fruitful life. Filled with all joy and peace through faith. That ye may abound in hope. Joy, peace, hope. Abounding in it. Filled with all of it. Through the power of the Holy Ghost. It's Holy Ghost power. We are not exaggerating Holy Ghost power today by talking about speaking in tongues. There's little power in that. The devil does that, and men can learn it in just a few minutes. That is a psychologically induced state of psychosis that makes you act like an idiot. We're talking about real power, and that is to be happy when your circumstances are bad. That is to be peaceful when there's strife all around you. And so that's real power, and so it's called the power of the Holy Ghost right here, and it's very personal things. It's fruit on the inside. Joy, peace, and hope. Let's go back to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. And the young men this morning weren't sure what they were doing as far as lining up with their pastor, but the Lord knew what they were doing. And thank you for the benchmark, Austin, and thank you for the opening chain. Psalm 73. It's not written by David, it's written by Asaph. Who was Asaph? The praise and worship leader hired and assigned by David in his absence. Now for David to pick Asaph, does that tell you anything about Asaph? What kind of a man he was? How much he loved God and loved the worship and praise of God? He would have had to measure up to David's high standards, and David had high standards. But this is Asaph. He was one of God's ministers, one of the highest ministers. His circumstances in life would have been quite good. David would have made sure that his circumstances were quite good. But his feet had slipped. In John 15, it's there. It's a conversation between 12 men. And the Lord Jesus Christ knows that his 11 Asaphs are about to embark on a job the likes of which Asaph couldn't have imagined in his darkest hours. They were going to go preach to the world and be treated like the off-scouring of the earth. Have you ladies ever scoured pans? Do you know what off-scouring is? It's the junk that ends up on your steel wall pad. Do they still use those things? It's the junk that ends up on them, off a pan. Days, weeks maybe, if it's a pan you've neglected for a while, is on that steel wool pad. The off-scouring of the earth. Those are the apostles. That's how they were going to be treated. They, would, they knew they had the truth. They knew that their Lord Jesus Christ was in heaven. They knew that they were going to heaven. They could raise the dead, heal the sick, preach in any language, preach absolute truth at any time. They understood all mysteries. They could cut through all philosophical controversies of men, and yet they were treated like the off-scouring of the earth. Would that get you discouraged? Jesus knew they would get discouraged. So he said, abide in me, and I in you, and you can do anything. Abide in me, and I in you, Ask anything, and I'll do it for you. I will take care of you. Just abide in me. 
Asaph didn't abide in him, slipped away, and you just heard that explained to you very well by Austin until he went into the sanctuary of God. Well, this was the sanctuary. It was a two-mile dusty trek from Jerusalem to Bethany, and the Lord Jesus Christ was helping his apostles. The comfort that was there. Verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Did Jesus Christ hold the hands of the apostles? Paul said, All men forsook me, but the Lord stood with me. Did he reach down his hand and lift John up? Did he reach out his hand and pull Peter out of the sinking of the waters where he was sinking to drown? Yes, the Lord was there for him. Verse 24, thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. Did the Lord do that for the apostles and afterward receive me to glory? Yes, he did it far more than he did it for Asaph. Because these apostles were the greatest men in either testament in either church of God. Look at Hebrews, verses 27 and 28. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. If you do not want to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ by being a believing, loving, obedient disciple, then you'll never amount to anything and you will be destroyed. For that lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. The contrast, but it is good for me to draw near to God. That's abide in me. That's abide in me. It's that simple. You read about abiding in him and departing from him in Deuteronomy 6 last night. If you do these statutes and commandments and judgments and keep them, I'll do all these favorable, wonderful, powerful blessings in your life. If you don't, I'll do the opposite and I'll destroy you and chase you by your enemies. It was very simple there. It's very simple in Psalm 73. It's very simple in John 15. Are you a disciple today? in every part of your life, and are you going to continue to be a disciple in every part of your life? That's abiding in Christ. He'll provide every bit of power that you need and then some. He can do things exceeding abundantly above what you can ask or think. Are you going to be a disciple? Are you going to stay with me? Then are you to my disciples indeed. That's all it is. But it is good for me to draw near to God. That's abiding in the vine. I have put my trust in the Lord God that's abiding in the vine that I may declare all thy works that's abiding in the vine that's exactly what the apostles did they went and declared all the works of God in ways that Asaph couldn't dream of now let's go to Hebrews chapter 10 Hebrews chapter 10 we often refer to other verses in this chapter but I want to go to the end of this chapter the Apostle Paul has just warned them about slipping away and going back with the other Jews in verses 26 through 31. In verses 32 through 34, he describes their great conversions. These are converted people. We are not Calvinists. I had to labor with a young man yesterday in New York City who was being abused by Calvinists because he was led astray in his youthful zeal, and he is one special young man. Led astray in his zeal to consider another form of doctrine about the sonship and deity of Jesus Christ, and told by Calvinists he was on his way to hell, because true believers never fall away. Perseverance of the saints is a lie from the pit of hell. 
Most of God's children don't persevere. Asaph didn't persevere. Can you read him? Listen to the way he's talking. He said, if I was to open this stuff up and say it publicly, I'd be despised by the people. They'd probably stone me to death. Because he had departed from a proper perspective. There's a young man out there. Lord God, have mercy upon him right now. I asked him how much he trusted me and how much he trusted our church because I'll fly him to Greenville for a week. I'll take care of him in my house. And I'll tell him what Calvinists are all about. They're lying heretics. Lot is in heaven as much as Abraham. Samson is in heaven as much as Samuel. That does not mean that we're going to set our lives to follow the course of Lot or Samson. I hate Calvinists. Baby sprinkling state church classical educated people. Give me a good wide open Arminian. You say, you really don't mean that, do you? Well, probably not, but uh, just a little bit. I'd love to see an Arminian, you know, on fire for the Lord more than some of these dead Calvinists that want to pick on a 16-year-old. He took down his whole website. It's beautiful. He had deep answers to deep questions that he wrote the questions and the answers about eternal justification. This is a, this lad, 16 years old. This is how he's using his summer vacation. And he said, my summer vacation hasn't turned out very well. All the Calvinists are telling me that my two years of loving the Lord Jesus, my last two years of being converted and loving the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm just a self-deceived reprobate. I didn't plan for any of that. The Lord planned it. And, I, right, right. and just looking at these verses, verses 32 through 34 are Paul commending their great outstanding conversion and the fruit in their lives. Then he says in verse 35, cast not away therefore your confidence. This is Psalm 73. This is John 15. Don't leave what you've started. Cast not away therefore your confidence. They had confidence in Christ. They had confidence in the gospel. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, if any man doesn't want to abide in the vine, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul." And this is practical salvation, but we, we believe and continue in our practical salvation by abiding in Christ and not drawing back, not, not backsliding. This is talking about backsliding. John 15 is talking about backsliding. And it says in the first part of verse 39, we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. The word perdition is not complicated. It simply means destruction, judgment, right. judgment and destruction. And if a, if a branch doesn't abide in Christ... He's purged off, gathered up like branches and burned. Is there burning here in Hebrews 10 that could happen to these? Oh, yes. They'd be burned in the city of Jerusalem if they drew back. Okay, let's get over to John 15. John 15, and let's get through these eight verses so that we can get to verses 9 through 17 next Sunday. If you like John 15, 1 through 8, then show us that you know how to abide in the vine. And show us that you will stay in the vine and bear the fruit that his power will supply. 
John chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Jesus, by the Holy Spirit of God, chose a metaphor to instruct the eleven of their source of their power. This is a very personal, intimate conversation between him and his men before they embark on an enormous project that they're going to need his strength to do. And did he ever give them his strength? They were so bold, so wise, so powerful after the day of Pentecost. It's wonderful to read the book of Acts. Don't you love the book called the Acts of the Apostles? It's the Acts of the Apostles. Because it's the power of Christ working through those 11 men. And then 12, and then 13, and then 14, and then 15. God raised his apostles up. And about number 15 is the one we love the most. Because he brought the gospel to us goyim, us Gentile pagans. The apostle Paul. Thank you, Lord, for him. And he abided in the vine. Did Paul love the vine? Did Paul stay in the vine? When Satan came after Paul and buffeted him, and he begged God to take it away three times, as soon as he realized that there was enough strength in the vine to take care of him as a branch that was being buffeted by Satan, he said, therefore, I most gladly, therefore, glory in my infirmities. I appreciate this buffeting that I'm getting. Oh, yeah, it's 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 are pretty special verses of abiding in the vine and being able to do anything. There are many false alternatives that men have reverted to rather than following Jesus Christ. The only one I want to mention right now is a systematic theology. If you find your strength and comfort from a systematic theology, which isn't the source or the grace or the power compared to Jesus Christ by the Spirit... It is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, loving him and being his disciple, believing on him and everything that he has said to believe about him and his relationship with the Father and his, his role as our Savior and his position in heaven, loving him for who he is and his love for us. No greater love hath a man than he laid down his life for his friends and Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. To love him and then to obey him, there is power from that personal relationship with Christ. There's power for you to do anything and everything you should do. You can be great in the kingdom of heaven. You can be great as a father, great as a mother. You can change lives around you. You can be a true soul winner by being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And it's not complicated to be a disciple. It means we follow him. The way he lives, we live. The way he talks, we talk. His rules for us, we follow them in every part of our lives. It's that simple. And stay there. And stay there. Look at Asaph, the greatest praise and worship leader second to David in Israel. He slipped. If he slipped, can you slip? Listen, does everybody here know they can slip? My father is the husbandman. Jehovah is the vine dresser, almighty God. What What a wonderful verse, that first verse to introduce the metaphor. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. There is a vineyard, men, and it's the kingdom of God. I'm the vine, my father is the husbandman, and he is looking for maximum quality. I did waste a few hours this week doing what I said to you was a disgusting disgrace. And I read about grapevine pruning. And I have linked studies in my outline about grapevine pruning. It is a very exact science learned over thousands of years 
It is not to maximize quantity. Maximizing quantity reduces quality. It is, it is fascinating, but it doesn't have much to do with this. And so I'm going to go right back to my same point. I get tired of reading commentaries and looking at them. The way I study is to ask God to lead me through a passage, make my outline, and then go see what the boys have to say about it. If the boys have a good thing to add, I'll add it. If they don't, I get upset. It's a shame. But he's the husbandman, so we've got a vineyard. It's the kingdom of God. We've got a vine. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got a husbandman that's looking for grape clump, clump, uh, clusters. That's, the, that's God the Father, the Lord Jehovah. And who are the branches? It's the apostles here, but it's us today. In John 15, it was the apostles. If Jehovah is the husbandman, the fact is comfort for needs and warning for backsliding. We don't want to leave that vine if his father is the husbandman. But if we stay in the vine, we have the power of Jehovah God in us. Didn't he say he would come to us in the previous chapter? While the discussion was still seated in the upper room, didn't Jesus say, Men, if you'll love me and keep my commandments, my father will love you. Who is that father? The husbandman. Instead of thinking of hate, violence, purging, think love. Because that's what he had just told them while they were sitting. They stood up and they've walked a few hundred yards and he continues, I am the true vine. Men, he knew what job they had in front of them. They didn't. They had never preached in public like this before. They had never stood up to the entire Sanhedrin and rulers of the Jews. In the city of Jerusalem on a feast day, did they do it in Acts 2? Oh, yes, they did. See, Jesus already saw that. You're going to need me, man. Do you need him? Amen. Are you able to do everything in your flesh every day that you're supposed to do? My chain can get jerked so fast. I sometimes wonder if the Lord's picked me for personal illustrations to me of the smallest things jerking my chain. I mean, I wouldn't even tell you. You'd run me out of here on a pole. How little things can jerk my chain and mess me up. Because we've got to stay in the vine. We've got to stay in the vine. And oh, those men did stay in the vine. And they were great. And thank you, Lord, for them. We want to be thankful for the Father. The, the point that I was making is when we look at that first verse, it gives us two components of four. The vine is Christ, the husbandman, or that is the farmer that owns the vineyard and is looking for the fruit and wondering how prosperous the year, the vintage will be. What's the vintage going to be for our church in 2018? What about 2019 vintage produced by this church? Right. Let's make it great. Two things are mentioned. The disciples of the branches and the vineyards, the kingdom. The kingdom of God on earth. But he had told them in chapter 14, in verses 21 and 23, that if they would love him and keep his commandments, my father will love you, I will love you, we will come to you, and we will abide with you. I will not leave you comfortless. You'll have strength. And so he's just explaining it in a different way now. 
instead of just laying it out, if you'll love me and keep my commandments, my Father will love you and I will love you and we'll manifest ourselves to you in a way that we haven't so far, that's pretty plain. Here he uses a metaphor for them. And they may have passed a vineyard. And he may have poured the, well, he did pour the fruit of the vine to bring it to mind. I'm the true vine. But that isn't important. What's important is, are you going to stay in that vine? You know who the vine is? I just told you. Jesus is Is it in the red writing in your Bible? See, I have a black letter edition. These old Oxford Bibles don't have red letter edition Bibles. So I don't know. Did, is Jesus speaking in verse 1? Is it, is it red in your Bible? I am the true vine. Don't get distracted anywhere else. Asaph got distracted. Jesus knew they would be tempted to be distracted. I'm the true vine. Be my disciple. Stay there, and I'll see you through. Did Asaph say, he'll guide me with his counsel, he'll take me by the hand and receive me up into glory? That's everything. What else do you need? That's everything. And he did it for the apostles. Okay, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. In what sense are the branches in Jesus Christ? They're in Jesus Christ practically. If you need a great long lesson, go to the outline. Because look at what we have in the first part of verse 2. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. There's three things. There's a branch being in Christ. There's a branch not bearing fruit. And there's a branch being taken away. Can you have your salvation taken away in four phases? No. Can you have your practical salvation taken away? Yes. Can you bear fruit in the eternal, legal, vital, or final phase? No, you can't. You can only bear fruit in the practical. Therefore, on those grounds and a whole lot more, it's practical, practically being in Christ. Because it is something that you choose to do. He's going to tell them down here, if a, if a man abide in me, and if a man abide not in me. He's going to tell them to do it. You can't choose to abide in Christ eternally, legally, vitally, or finally. You can only choose to abide in him practically. And that's where fruit bearing occurs. Practically. Enough. You know, I'm, I'm sorry that you've ever had anybody tell. You know what people will get out of this passage? I'll tell you when I swore off of Arthur Pink. Now, we give away Arthur Pink's The Sovereignty of God. And for those of you that are listening, and I know that you're listening, and I know one brother in Michigan is listening, and, and that brother in Michigan is very sharp, and that brother in Michigan wrote me a complete critique of the sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink. And I love you, brother in Michigan, that wrote me that critique about the sovereignty of God. But I tried to explain to you why we give away books that have so much <laughs> error and heresy in them. Because there are so many good things said in that book, and I'd rather have somebody read that book, get excited about the sovereignty of God, and then I can point out to them where the errors are in that book. Right. But I swore off on Arthur W. Pink when I read his his exposition of the Gospel of John and the first eight verses of John 15. Unbelievable Calvinistic drivel. These are all false professors, and they are all going to hell. I'm, would you please tell me how that helped the apostles before they embarked on their great calling? Would you just explain to me, all I need is a little just a token of explanation how that would help the apostles on the road to Bethany. Guys, there's reprobates out there that sometimes say, I love Jesus and they're all going to hell. 
Guys, does that cheer you? Does that comfort you? I, rem I remember reading that like I had run upon him believing in evolution. Didn't make any difference to me. It was so profane. But you know, once you say that I agree to TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, the perseverance of the saints, because there's, there's guys here not bearing fruit in verse 2. Well, if they're not bearing fruit and all of God's elect are going to persevere and bear fruit, then these can't be God's elect. They have to be reprobates. I did not pick yesterday for that young man to write me. And I didn't pick that yesterday would be final review of John 15, 1 through 8, just to have me at a feverish pitch before I get emails and exchange with the lad. I just, I love the Lord. Amen. He was just wanting to let me know how right we are by God's grace to understand that the P of tulip is heresy and the damage that it does and the ruin that it brings on interpretation. If we put that interpretation on these eight verses, they have absolute zero value. Unless you want to raise your hand and say, I think I'm a reprobate. Then what value is it going to be when I tell you I know where you're going? You're going to wither like a branch and be burned in the fire. And that's hellfire. John 15. Every branch of me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. How does God take us away sometimes when we don't bear fruit? This is practical productivity, obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ and being his disciple. He taketh away. God took Eli away. God took Saul away. God took many at the church at Corinth away. I gave you all this. He took many at Laodicea away. He, he was going to take himself away from the church at Ephesus. A minister can cost himself. We went over all these last Lord's Day. Paul himself was afraid that he could be a castaway. Did Paul think when he said that, that the book of life is going to be opened and he just might not be able to find my name and I'll be cast away? No. He meant that he would be like Saul of the Old Testament and live the rest of his life in fruitlessness. And have we ever seen that happen? Anybody that didn't abide in the vine Christ Jesus and truly follow him with discipleship waste the last 30 years of their lives? It's been terrible to us, hasn't it? Let's not let that happen. Let's finish with a flourish. Right. Let's run our last lap faster than we've run our previous laps. Amen. Every branch of me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. God can take you away physically. God can take you away spiritually. He can blind you. He can harden you. He hardened Israel. Just read the Old Testament. It's there to illustrate everything that is taught in the New Testament. He would harden Israel, and they would rebel against him, and they'd go whoring away after things, and then he'd have to revive them. And he does the same thing with his apostles and with us. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. He cuts things away. It is a science of how many inches you have between nodules on a vine branch to maximize quality and quantity. But you can't maximize quantity by itself or you cost yourself quality. It's, a, it's, it's year, thousands of years. You know, what did Noah have in his satchel when he went on the ark? And don't tell me a guinea pig because he liked them. <laughs> Please. A he had a vine. Right. He had a vine. As soon as he got off the boat, he planted that vine. And branches come out that it may bring forth more fruit. 
God saved us as his children. He saved us to be his children, and he will perfect our fruitfulness by various means. He'll not forsake the work of his hands. We're his saved sons. Look at Colossians 1 that I read to you. Look what happened in, in, the, sanctuary, uh, in the sanctuary for Asaph in Psalm 73. The best text for increased fruitfulness is Hebrews 12.11. Look at it with me. Hebrews 12.11. There's a whole passage here. You read it last Lord's Day about last, the preparation about chastening. I only want one verse. It, the, the chastening passage of the New Testament is Hebrews 12.5-17. through 17. But I want verse 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. It's not fun to have things cut out of your life. But grievous. Now no chastening for the present, the present, seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Ah, so God's chastening doesn't work all the time? No, it doesn't work all the time. Sometimes God's chastening brings greater condemnation on you because you didn't respond to it the way you should have. Ever spanked a child? Ever spanked a child for some particular offense and then had them repeat it? Or did all of your chastening efforts work? The second time around, was it easier or harder? Nobody wants to say, I'm the one being recorded. The second time around, was it easier or harder chastening? The third time around, what was it like? Well, the Lord does the same. The Lord does the same. And if the chastening has got to get bad enough, he'll take your life away. The church of Corinth and others in the Bible had their lives taken away. Hebrews 12, 11 was a beautiful verse that tells us about God's chastening in our lives. The furnace of afflictions will burn off dross just like a refiner. And we want that refining fire in our lives. Right. He, you've got to get rid of unnecessary weights. God called Abraham to leave his father's house and to come into Canaan. What did Abraham do? Because he had a dad that wanted to go along with him. He took Terah with him. What happened to Terah? Because Abraham let him go with him. He was killed before God would let him go into the land of Canaan. Right. you got to get weights out of your life. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us and lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us because God wants us to get rid of weights and get rid of sins so that we can be true disciples of Jesus Christ committed to his cause and bearing fruit for him. Once you understand the motive, the purpose, and results of purging, you'll embrace purging. Look at Psalm 94. Psalm 94 as a cross-reference about purging. Purging is pruning. The word purge is used, but it's, it's funny when you look up the word purge, you find out that a synonym for it in the English language is prune. Prune. So we know what it's, talk, we know what it's talking about by the context. The context of John 15, 1 through 8 is absolutely vine dressing. And so when you read a word like purge, you're not thinking of water purging something. You're thinking of pruning. You're purging a vine of wasteful branches that aren't bearing fruit because you don't want any nutrients going on a branch that doesn't bear fruit. You want that off so that all the nutrients are flowing to the branches that bear abundant fruit. Psalm 94, verse 12. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law. 
that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. That's the difference between men in this world. God chastens us and condemns them, destroys them, but he's just trying to get some things out of our lives. And if we looked at it the right way, we would say, I'm blessed. That's the psalmist describing it. Look at Jeremiah 31. Here's the prophet Jeremiah describing it. Jeremiah 31, verse 18. Jeremiah 31, 18. Soon it'll be on a big screen, maybe. So that you don't have to look at the index in the front of your Bible to find where Jeremiah is, whether it's the New Testament or the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 18. Listen to this. I have surely heard Ephraim. That was a little nickname for Israel. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock, unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned. I repented, and after that I was instructed. I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Do you like those verses? That's the husbandman you're afraid of. Don't read John 15, 1 through 8 for fear. The emphasis wasn't by fear for those 11 apostles. It was comforting strength to be able to do what they were going to have to do. And look at this. This is the vine dresser. This is Jehovah. You know, the one that sends thunder and lightning and scares you at night when he rattles your window panes, when he's whispering to me and telling me that he loves me and he wants me to tell him that I love him again. But what is it that scares you about God? This is the vine dresser after chastening Ephraim like they were a bullock that didn't want the yoke. Now, if you had paid a lot of money for a bullock and you put a yoke on it and it didn't want to plow for you, what would you do to it? Give it a sugar cube on your open palm? Or would you take a hammer and get its attention right between its eyes? I didn't mean a sled... You don't like my animal training techniques? <laughs> you get its attention. Look at the vine dresser. Is Ephraim my dear son? Or the apostles, his dear, the vine dresser's dear son? Yes. Are we? Yes. Is he a pleasant child? Yes. For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. When you respond to chastening, do you ever do it perfectly? No, it's so. Does it really matter? If you've turned and you're making an effort to be his disciple again, that's how he thinks about you. Thank you, Lord, for such wonderful verses that it may bring forth fruit. Oh, yes. Manasseh's best years. When were Manasseh's best years? Did Manasseh have any good years? Yes, he did. He was on the throne of Judah, the worst king they ever had, the son of Hezekiah. Let that comfort you, parents. Hezekiah was one of God's four greatest kings of Judah. But yet Manasseh, the worst king of Judah, was Hezekiah's son. Manasseh set up altars to sacrifice children in the temple of God. God had him taken captive by the Babylonians and hauled off to Babylon, where in prison he humbled himself greatly 
and said, The Lord is God. And the king of Babylon put him back on his throne in Judah. And if you go read about him then, great years. But what did it take? It was ugly. It was painful. But he did come around because the Lord brought him around. Did Peter need pruning before Pentecost? Oh, Satan's desire to have you, and Satan's desire is pretty good, Peter, so I'm going, to give him, I'm going to give you to him for a day. But when you're converted, see, he needed to be converted. When you come out of your little, uh, your pride and your arrogancy, and you're denying me, strengthen your brethren. Did Peter need pruning before Pentecost? Yes, he got it. Did he need it after Pentecost? Yes, he did. Galatians chapter 1 and 2. Did he get it? Yes. Did Corinth get corrected? Have men been corrected and then lost everything? Did God send Samuel to tell Eli what he needed to do? Eli didn't do it, so God took away Eli's entire family tree. All these are in the Bible. Verse 3, now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Now ye are clean. We don't have washing under consideration here. So what does the Lord mean by the words, now ye are clean? We have a context to follow, and the context is pruning. Ye are clean of barren branches. Had there been a barren branch? Had Jesus taught these 11 everything that he should teach them for them to be fully able to abide in the vine? Two ways we can look at this. Jesus had taught them everything, so ye are clean. You are purged from everything false. I have purged you from the leaven of the Pharisees. I have purged you from ungodly, carnal, earthly ideas of the kingdom of heaven. I've purged you by my words, because look at the whole verse. Verse 3 says, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Now the singular word can sometimes mean whole sections of doctrine taught by Jesus Christ. And there's many references for that that I'll not even turn you to. You should know that. My doctrine and my teaching has made you clean. I've purified your lives. I've, got, I've cleaned up all the junk that you had And on the day of Pentecost, you're able to go do what you're supposed to do. Now you're clean. You're ready. But there's another way. If we pop back to John chapter 13 or another angle on it, and whenever I do this, I use an expression that's very dangerous to use, but I hope you understand it, and that is inspired ambiguity when in a text you are not told specifically what it is limited to, and it could mean a couple of things. And what I just told you could absolutely mean Over the three and a half years ministry that Jesus had with the apostles, he delivered them from a lot of misunderstanding about the kingdom of God and the leaven of the Pharisees and rabbinical teaching of the Jews and the Pharisees and so forth. Their hypocrisy, he had taught them all that. Think about that. This is at the end of his life. You're clean through the word that I've spoken unto you. But there was another specific word, and it says, now ye are clean. So what had just happened? Chapter 13. Jesus is washing the apostles' feet. He comes to Simon Peter. Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Verse 10, Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet. Remember, they had already taken their baths, but they had walked with open shoes from the bath to the upper room. All they needed now was to have their feet washed. They'd be completely clean again, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. Notice the word clean. But ye are clean, but not all. Not all of you are clean sitting here at this table. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, ye are not all clean. But now were they all clean 
on the road to Bethany? Yes, they were. Okay? John, 12, John 15 and verse 3. Now ye are clean to the word which I have spoken unto you. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. That is the wonderful offer of reciprocal relationship and fellowship with God. Abide in me and I in you. God, through Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God, will abide in a person that abides in him. This is wonderful here. Abide in me and I in you. Verse 5, he that abideth in me and I in him. This is the wonderful opportunity of fellowship with Jesus Christ. If a man will abide in me and I in him, because as we abide in him and are true disciples, believing, loving, and obeying him, he, as he promised in John 14, comes to us by the Spirit and dwells with us and will manifest himself to us more than ever before. And so he comes into us. John, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 is our verse. The Arminians don't understand that verse. There's no salvation in that verse except practical faith salvation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. And I will sup with him and he with me. The reciprocal relationship in the vine, with the, between the vine and the branches. It's, if he, if you can be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prayed that the Spirit would strengthen them in their inner man, that they would comprehend all the dimensions of Christ's love. And when they understood all the dimensions of Christ's love, it would pass knowledge. It would not be able to be learned any other way but by divine revelation than they could be filled with all the fullness of God. It's just a, the reciprocal relationship with Jesus Christ. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Remember? But he doesn't come to everyone, and he doesn't even come to all of God's children. In fact, he doesn't even come to most of God's children in the way that's described in 14 and 15. This is for his apostles, and we want to be like them. That's why Paul was praying for even the church at Ephesus. Why in the world was he praying for the church at Ephesus if it was something that is done fatalistically by the sovereignty of God? That was his church. That was his church. He spent over two years there. Because there's growth in grace all the time for us. And we do not know the rewards. What's the song say? That we cannot fully... In Orville? Listen, QT, if you can help me right now. <laughs> Trust and obey until all on the altar we lay. What comes in front of that? Oh, <laughs> oh, you're beautiful. You'd be thinking about what you want. Uh, we can never prove that the full delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. You do not know how much Jesus Christ can do for you. I don't know. Our church doesn't know. Would you like to experience it? Would you like to experiment with it? Lord, help us do that. Amen. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except that it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. Do you need help with that verse? That is so simple and plain. Stay true to me as a disciple and I'll take care of all your needs. I'll give you the power to do everything that I'm asking you to do as apostles. And what he's asking us to do is far less than he was asking of the apostles, so he surely has power for that. Verse 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches. Guys, let me take that first verse and expand it and apply it to you. 
I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, there's that reciprocal relationship that he'd explained in chapter 14, the same, that person, that man, he, singular, you, brethren. See, our second person pronouns stink. I just had to shift to you because that's what you would understand. And you don't know who I'm talking to because it could be all of you or one of you. And I meant one of you as all of you. I meant each of you individually. Amen. He that abideth in me and I in him, singular. It's, it's not group-wise. It's not the apostles. It's singular. He that abideth in me and I in him, that same man will bring forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. In the flesh they couldn't do nothing. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord in Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6. And that's what they were going to do. They couldn't muster up the courage to jump up and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ in front of the Sanhedrin. If Jesus withdrew his spirit just a little bit, they wouldn't even know what to say in the second sentence. They might get the first one out, but there wouldn't be a second. But with the spirit there, it would be a supply in any language, on any point of doctrine. And they did it. Amen. Without me, ye can do nothing. Women, you can be great mothers. I want every mother in here to be a great mother in the earth and a great wife in the earth, a bold Shulamite, a doting paramour. That, that's your husband. I want your husbands to be doting paramours. How? By the power of Jesus Christ in you. Do we slip away from the vine? Look at me. Do we slip away from the vine? It is a daily struggle to stay attached to the vine. But once you do, there's so much blessings there. You say, where in the, what in the world was I doing before? Right. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And ye shall find rest for your souls. That's the vine dresser. I know it sounds like a hard life to find rest for your souls and to bear all kinds of fruit. Verse 6, if a man abide not in me... He is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. That is all the metaphor. There is no hell near John 15, 6. If you have a grapevine, and you have a hundred acres of grapevines, and you are pruning them, and it, you're not going to do it by yourself, you're going to have a lot of branches that you're going to cast in a pile, they're going to wither, meaning they're going to dry out, and you're going to call the county and say, may I have a big bonfire? And you're going to burn them. It's all metaphorical. If you try to shove something into six that doesn't belong there, you are the same kind of a person that would take the Good Samaritan parable and try to make the two pence the Old and New Testament. Or the two phases of primitive Baptist salvation, time and eternal. Don't do it. There's no hell there. Men, if you don't preach just the way I want you to, I'm going to send you to hell. That did not take place on the road to the Mount of Olives. All, it's a, it's the, the verse is a metaphor. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth. We have a little word that turns it into a simile. As a branch, as a branch. And from that point on, everything that is there as a branch and is withered, because men aren't branches, really, we're men, but we can be as a branch 
and branches get withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire. What men cast anybody into the lake of fire? Come on. I just want to help you. I want to help you do your eisegesis. That is reading into the passage what you want to be there. Instead of exegesis, reading out of it what is there. Let's work it, let's work it over. Men gather them. When are men going to gather reprobates? I thought even the apostles couldn't gather them, and they had to wait for the angels to do so, according right. to Matthew chapter 13, and cast them into the fire. I thought Jesus was going to cast them into the fire and are burned. Are there other burnings in the Bible? Was there a burning of Jerusalem? Is burning described in the Old Testament? Was Jerusalem ever burned in the Old Testament? Did Nebuchadnezzar ever burn Jerusalem? Yep. Burning? See, you're, you're focusing on the B word. And the B word to you, when you look at this, is oh, there's the F word, pastor. There's a B word, there's an F word, burning and fire. Burning and fire have to be hell. Hell fire, and people get burned up in the lake of fire. Yes, they do. They don't get burned up. They suffer torment there forever and ever. But this verse is not talking about it. Right. It's talking about being fruitless and withered up, and your ministry is nothing, and so you disappear from the earth. You're taken away. Branches are taken away by fire. Branches are taken away by being burned. But that is just the metaphor. That is the simile. Think about it. We're in a context of comfort. Men, if you don't stay loyal to me all the way through, I'm going to cast you forth like a reprobate. The angels are going to come and gather you together and bind you and cast you into the bottomless pit, and you're going to be burned with hellfire forever and ever. The verse isn't teaching anything like that. It's using a metaphor. And listen, when the Lord, I love the Lord using metaphors. I love him giving the parable of the Good Samaritan and have people run off trying to figure out what the two pence are, trying to figure out what the oil and wine is. Do you know why? Because the Lord's given them some rope to hang themselves, and I love watching them dangle in the breeze because the passage says very specifically, who is my neighbor? That whole passage is about my neighbor. A cultural enemy is in the ditch, wounded. Will you stop and help a cultural enemy. This is the vineyard of the kingdom of God, and the apostles are the branches. And if they were not faithful in being disciples of Jesus Christ, then they would be cast forth as a branch, and in vineyards, branches that are cast forth wither, they dry up, and men gather branches that are cast forth in real vineyards and cast them into fire, and those branches are burned. Men could be cast forth and be a castaway, like Paul was worried about right. in 1 Corinthians 9.27. But Paul wasn't worried about going to hell. Paul was just worried about not being fruitful for the Lord Jesus Christ and being left by him. Hezekiah was once left by the Lord and showed the weakness that he had in him naturally. Verse 7, if ye abide in me, now he shifts to the 11 with that plural pronoun ye, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, and that's what it means to be a disciple. What does it mean to abide in Jesus Christ? His words abiding in us. We love his word. We love his doctrine. We love his rules. We want to do things his way. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. I will, I will answer every one of your prayers. I will make sure you get what you're asking for if you will abide in me. Of course, this is subject to the will of God. It's all prayer, answers to prayer are always subject to the will of God. 
But when you need me and you call on me, if you're being a faithful disciple, I'll be there for you. If you don't abide in me, then you're going to not bear fruit, and my Father's going to take you away in all the ways that I've mentioned, which in verse 6 was compared to branches of a vineyard being burned. But no one is going to hell that's a child of God and has their name written in the Lamb's book of life and that Jesus died for on the cross and the Holy Spirit regenerated. They are already glorified in the purpose of God in the past tense sense of that verb from Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Amen. Verse 8, herein is my Father glorified. Now, when, when you read a verse like this, does this get you excited? Herein is my Father glorified. My Father, the Lord Jehovah, gets glorified this way. Does that get you worked up a little bit? Well, I'm sorry that it doesn't. Some of you it does. My Father, the Lord Jehovah, gets glorified this way. Herein is this way. Herein is my Father glorified. Can I, can you, did those fishermen glorify God? I hear a sound. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles. By, by whom? Men like this. Believed on the world, received up into glory. Without controversy, that was great. God did something spectacular through the apostles. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. Our fruit is not apostolic fruit. Our fruit can be converting souls. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Proverbs 11.30. Your fruit can be bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Your fruit can be a changed life. Your fruit can be being a better husband, a better parent, a better child. All those things are fruit-bearing. It's a changed life. This is apostolic right here, so that gets our first emphasis, and then it's us. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. Men, I've called you out of this world. When I stood at the edge of the Sea of Galilee, I said, who will follow me? And some of you dropped your nets and came after me, and I said, I'll make you fishers of men. And you came after me, and you've been with me for three and a half years. I've just told you that I'm going away, but you can be great. I have a great job for you to do. And my Father is going to be glorified. To this point, it's Jesus glorifying his Father. When we flip back through these chapters like John 12, and Jesus said, Father, glorify thy name. But guess who does that now? We get to do it. They got to do it between Jesus and us, but now we get to do it. Herein is my Father glorified that she bear much fruit and be my disciples indeed. That, it, that, it's that simple. And they went and did it. Will, are you willing to go and do it? Are we going to believe on him, love him, pursue him passionately is what I mean by loving him, and obey him and keep his commandments in all parts of our lives? That's a true disciple. And continue in it. Because in chapter 8 we learned that a true disciple is not one that believes on him momentarily, but a true disciple is one that believes on him and continues in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Amen. And here, so shall ye be my disciples by bearing fruit. And my Father gets glorified. Men, 
you can rejoice heaven. Church, you can rejoice heaven. Let's bear much fruit. Let's be his disciples. Let none of us be castaways. Let this body of believers hold together until the Lord takes us one by one into glory. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.